This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Today, another chance to hear our interviews with the men and women running to be Colorado's next governor. Yesterday, we heard from the Republicans. Today, the Democrats. The primaries are next week, and they're open to unaffiliateds. First up, Mike Johnston. The former Democratic state senator introduced himself recently to voters gathered at a home in Denver. I grew up on the western slope of Colorado. I'm the only candidate who's not from the you know, Denver-Boulder Front Range area. But my, my mom was a music teacher and my dad was a bartender. And they moved to Eagle County in the 60s and my dad was running a bar there. And my mom bumped into the guy with the handlebar mustache and the purple chopper and the fishnet shirt and said, <laughs> that is the father of my children. <laughs> he served in the Colorado Senate from 2009 to 2017. Prior to entering politics, he says his life was moving on a very familiar path. I eventually followed my mom into the real family business in our family, which is public school teaching. Uh, I'm proud that I'm a fourth-generation public school teacher. Uh, I started my career teaching high school English, which was the one rule uh, in our house because my grandmother was an English teacher and my grandfather was a school principal. Uh, and then my grandfather ran away with the math teacher. And so <laughs> my grandmother always used to say, baby, you can be anything you want to be just not a math teacher. (laughs) Johnston went on to make education reform a big part of his legislative career. There were highs and lows for him. He was the architect of Colorado's teacher evaluation system. He also fought for a statewide tax increase for schools in 2013, which voters defeated resoundingly. Let's listen back to our conversation with Johnston, recorded in our studios April 24th. What's the single biggest problem facing Colorado, and how do you propose to solve it? I think the single biggest problem facing the state is how are we going to make the necessary investments in our people in the state, which is around K-12 education and higher education, and in our infrastructure, which is around roads and bridges. If you want to be able to grow this state in a way that protects what we love most about it, those are the two most important things, is people and infrastructure. And I think to do that, you're going to have to have a governor who's going to lead in going to the ballot and repealing the worst parts of Tabor so we can actually restore funding to a system that right now we have one of the fastest growing economies in the country and one of the worst funded K-12 and higher ed systems and roads and bridges infrastructure in the country. Okay, so the theme there is investment, and that obviously points to the need for the state, in your mind, to have more money. So you talk about repealing the worst parts of Tabor. Tabor is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in the Colorado Constitution, and it says state and local governments cannot raise taxes or spend beyond a revenue cap without voter approval. Uh, At that house party we visited, you demonstrated how you would change Tabor uh, using a wine glass or or a <laughs> beer mug. Help us understand how that illustrates what you call the worst parts of Tabor. It's like the worst and best of Colorado at the same time, Tabor and the beer mug. The most damaging part of Tabor, I think, is the fact that it puts an absolute cap on the state budget, no matter what the state economy does. So the example I use is if you look at a at a beer mug and say, if this full beer would have been the entire set of state needs, you know, for K-12 education, for roads and bridges, for higher education... What Tabor does essentially is come and cuts a hole halfway up that glass, which means it doesn't matter how long you put that under the tap, that glass is never going to get full. You'll never fill the set of state needs because the beer will always pour out when you get to that hole in the glass. And so my proposal has been you don't have to raise taxes. You simply tape up the hole in the glass, which is what people that follow this would call debrucing uh, the state or allowing the state to keep the revenue that's coming in under the current economic recovery. This would require a vote of the people statewide. It would. You'd have to go to the voters. I propose you do it in 2020, which will be a historically high turnout election, I think, for this state. 
Presidential election. Presidential election. Okay, we will unpack transportation, education, all in this conversation. And why don't we start with education? Because you would funnel more money to schools. Education, a marquee issue for you. And yet one of your opponents in the Democratic primary, Kerry Kennedy, was endorsed by the state's largest teachers union, which said of her, she aligns with all of the issues and values that our members share. What does it say that there's such a disconnect between you and many of those in the family business, as you put it, and that is teaching? What I think you've seen in this debate is when resources get scarce, folks start fighting over the crumbs off the side of the table as opposed to solving how you fix the biggest problem there, which is funding resources. Uh, so, I, of course, you know I believe there are things that um, – I'll take a stand on, and I'm willing to disagree with folks in my own party and disagree with folks on the other side of the aisle. That's why. And on education, where is that? Is that particularly in the investment in charter schools and innovation schools? Do you think? Uh, no, I think that what I think that there obviously we want to have choice for parents. I think parents have made clear they like to be able to choose different sides of school, different types of schools that are public. Uh, I oppose privatization. I oppose vouchers. I was the first to oppose Betsy DeVos's nomination as secretary. So I think there's a real wrong road to go down there. But I do think there are parents in Colorado who want public public school choice as long as you hold charters to the same set of standards. I've also been the one to fight to say that charters ought to make sure they serve all kids. We have talked uh, briefly about workforce training. Mm -hmm. and One of the programs you're touting is called the Colorado Promise. In essence, it's a kind of educational national guard. Um, Coloradans of all ages, not just young people, would be able to go to school for two years and learn new skills debt-free. And in return, they'd volunteer for Colorado in some respect, giving back. Who do you think is in need of that kind of program? Uh, I think if you look at coal miners on the Western Slope, or you look at truck drivers, or you look at bank tellers, all of these industries that stand to be automated or changed or eliminated even potentially, we know we're going to have many, many Coloradans who are going to be in transition. Uh, and we know that the new jobs they're going to want to seek are going to require new skills. So I think we need a new vision for public education, which is not the old one where at age 18, you get a degree and that's an inoculation shot that keeps you employed for 50 years. That's not the new world. The new world is you got to change jobs eight to 10 times over your career and those need new skills. So we want a way for everyone to be able to get access to those skills at any stage of their career when they're making those changes. You would use online sales tax to pay for the bulk of that, uh, a tax that the state is not yet currently fully collecting. Okay, transportation. According to CDOT, there's a $9 billion shortfall for transportation needs. Republican lawmakers say the money is already there. The state just has to make it a priority. But uh, if some sort of measure were to get on the ballot, perhaps alongside your name, uh, asking for a tax hike for transportation, would you support it? I am likely to support it. There are a number of measures being considered right now, so I'd want to see what the final one is. But, you know, and these are all led by the business community and the chambers of commerce who are just saying for our own economic needs, we have to be able to make this change. I chaired the finance committee for four years in the Senate, so I can tell you there are not $9 billion in the couch cushions of the state budget to fund roads and bridges long term. And that's just the first nine years of needs, another $11 billion for the next 11 years after that. Every Democratic candidate in this race is talking about how to make sure that all Coloradans have health insurance. Uh, but th these candidates, including yourself, differ on how to get there. Uh, so Representative Jared Polis among the Democrats wants a single-payer system. Former State Treasurer Kerry Kennedy talks about a public option for anyone through Medicaid, or as both she and Donna Lynn suggest through the plans offered to state employees. Your proposal's more tailored than that. People uh, who have to spend more than 10% of their income on a plan could buy into a Medicaid public option. Why that more targeted approach? 
Because what we want to do is we want to provide choice in all the parts of the state where people don't have choice, which is what's driving up prices. What you don't want to do is destabilize the markets that are working effectively. And so what we've offered is, is a public option to buy into Medicaid in any places where the plans are currently unaffordable, which is do like the Western Do you think a statewide slope. plan would be destabilizing? I, I do think it would be. Okay. What you would see is a lot of private health care providers would probably leave the state. We'd have less choice. We'd have higher prices. As governor, is there anything you'd change about how oil and gas is regulated by state or local governments? We've come out and said a couple things. One is long-term, we obviously have to move the state to 100% renewable energy, so that's our big goal. But in the short term, we have to do far more to protect public health and safety. So I've said, yes, I think you have to push back setbacks uh, statewide. I think you should not allow folks to drill in places that are environmentally sensitive, like the Thompson Divide or the Sand Dunes. So further setbacks yes, I think have already been moved. Yep. I think they need to be, those need to be pushed back. They need to be pushed back statewide as one, I think you don't want where neighborhood by neighborhood, county by county are separately negotiated against oil and gas companies to see who gets the lowest setback. I think there ought to be one statewide setback. And what do you say to the people whose property is, is underground and taken by that? who don't have access, perhaps, to their minerals as a result. I don't believe that you can ban people's access to those minerals. I still believe they have access to recover them. But right now we know, and I've visited with these companies, right now you know, they're, they're running two-mile horizontal drills underground to be able to get to minerals. So a 500 or 1,000-foot setback is not going to make it impossible to get to those minerals. It just means you have to keep away from schools and homes. Briefly, to guns, you would ban bump stocks, create gun violence restraining orders, But at least one candidate in this race has called for a ban on assault-style weapons like the AR-15. You have not. Why not? Uh, I have, actually. I was the first one to come out and call for a ban on it. But I think the more important thing to watch is the size of the magazine. Because if you look at just two high-profile shootings in Colorado, of course, the Aurora Theater shooting, 100-round magazine on an AR-15. But if you just ban the AR-15 by itself, you still have the Columbine shooting, where you had a shooter who walked in to a high school with a handgun with a 52-round magazine in it. And if you have handguns that still carry 52-round magazines, that is the real thing to watch. So I was proud to sponsor the ban on high-capacity magazines. Every Republican candidate said they would repeal it. It's most important to protect that ban on high-capacity magazines, saves the most lives. But also, yes, I would sign an assault weapons ban if we could get that done. All right. I want to go back to something you said at that House gathering in Denver. Uh, You were discussing how your campaign is financed. You know, we have also raised more money than any gubernatorial campaign in Colorado history at this stage, Republican or Democrat. And the only campaign that's done it without a single dollar of PAC money, without a single dollar of special interest funding, or without self-financing. In March, Colorado Politics reported that former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, a co-founder of Everytown for Gun Safety, made a million-dollar donation to a super PAC which supports you. Is it disingenuous to say you're not getting PAC support, even if it's indirect? Uh, no, it's not. We All I'm responsible for is the dollars I bring into our campaign. The outside entities that support us, they make those decisions. I don't do that. But I'm proud of the fact that Michael Bloomberg looked around the country and said, "Who? where is there an elected official who has the courage to actually take on the NRA and get big things done? And they said I was the one with the biggest track record of being able to do that. Besides the money from Bloomberg, there's another contribution, this one $250,000 that's come from Reed Hoffman, the California entrepreneur who founded LinkedIn. Uh, as we pointed out, neither man lives in Colorado. What influence might they have in your administration? 
So what I think those people support is they're looking for leaders with track records of accomplishment, and they want to support those people that have the courage to take on hard fights and win. I think they don't find a lot of political courage when you look around the country. And I'm the only candidate in this race who's taken on the NRA twice and won twice in, a, in an era when more and more leadership is going to be taken by governors because the federal government is less and less successful. You're going to look to governors to make changes on the environment, on women's health, on gun safety, on education. All of the major innovations in this moment are going to come from the state. So I think where folks used to look at U.S. senators as a national investment. I think folks now are looking for governors to lead the country. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Mike Johnston speaking with Ryan Warner April 24th. You can hear more from him in our podcast, Who's Gonna Govern? You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Quite a few people are in the race, but not all of them have other full-time jobs. Donna Lynn has one, and then some. Ryan Warner takes it from here. Well, good afternoon. It's great to see so many of you. Lynn is Colorado's lieutenant governor and chief operating officer. And that means a lot of appearances like one last week in a ballroom at the Colorado Convention Center, where she handed out an award in her boss's name. Team Governor's Award for Worksite Wellness goes to Children's Hospital Colorado. When Governor John Hickenlooper picked her as his deputy two years ago, she said she had no plans to run when his term expired. Yet here she is, hoping to become the first female governor of Colorado. Despite the fact that she's so visible, traveling to every county as lieutenant governor, Lynn has struggled to show people her real personality. So her first campaign ad, released last week, shows her getting a tattoo, which isn't her first. This one means be bold. And now I'm getting another. The new one is on her shoulder. It says, fight for Colorado. This is her adopted state, but she said she has always had some fight in her. My personality was probably formed by um, being a young woman in the 50s and 60s and having uh, been told a lot of times, no, no, you can't do that, or there wasn't support for doing that. And I think I set out to defy some of the expectations that people had of me as a young girl in that era. So I've always been wanting to be a little bit of a pioneer. Um, And maybe that ties back to what you're saying, which is being the first woman governor of Colorado. But I didn't set out on that path in any way. We talked more about the path that led Donna Lynn here in an interview she recorded with Ryan on May 7th. First off, what's the biggest problem facing Colorado? What would you do to solve it? I think the biggest problem that I've uh, related to and and experienced is that there are different types of people in this state and different experiences that they're having, whether it's around our economic recovery, it's around the challenges of working families. We talk uh, at a very high level about the success in Colorado, but not everybody's experiencing that. And I feel that very personally, having been a A daughter of working class parents and somebody who struggled for a lot of her life. You're painting a picture of two Colorados that have a very different experience. And uh, with a focus on those who are struggling, what would you do as governor to make their lives better? Certainly affordability of housing and health care, I think, are the two biggest issues that a lot of working families have to tackle. Uh, Some differences are geographic, uh, rural versus urban. But even within our urban areas, we've got people who are making $9 an hour and struggling to find health care, struggling to find housing, uh, and struggling to pay for child 
childcare, and that, those are to me the key issues. I've outlined a few things that I would like to do uh, that include providing for more childcare tax credits and for more childcare. Uh, trying to work really hard on that issue of affordable health care, which I've done for the last pretty much 40 years of my life as well. Let's talk about health care. And I think this is a, a nice time to transition to your biography a bit, because you came to Colorado from the East Coast 13 years ago to run Kaiser's healthcare operation in Colorado. Before that, you'd worked for the city of New York and also in healthcare there. And you boasted a bit in your first campaign ad, which came out last week, that Governor Hickenlooper asked you to lead on health care and that the uninsured rate has come down by half. But that was largely accomplished with the Medicaid expansion, which happened before you joined the administration. Uh, Since you came on, there have been a lot of ideas. But what's the biggest thing? Give us one thing you've accomplished that will affect Coloradans' health care in the future and presumably its affordability. It is affordability, but affordability is not one issue that stands on its own. And one of the biggest issues that you know that we have in Colorado is a mental health crisis. And having been in public health my whole life and worked on this, we've got to tackle uh, mental health. And we've got to make sure that we do it in a way that it isn't in isolation. It's part of the conversation every doctor has that we have in our schools that we have, no matter where we are, to recognize that some of the issues that we have, whether it's gun violence, suicide rates, et cetera, are about mental health. But where have you been able to move the needle as lieutenant governor? So we actually got a $65 million grant from the federal government through a program called the State Innovation Model. I know it sounds wonky, but it has allowed us and the people work directly for me to go out and work with primary care doctors and talk about how they can incorporate uh, recognition and treatment of behavioral health in their offices. So $65 million has gone out to thousands of physicians in our communities to help them. That costs $65 million to tell doctors to ask about people's mental health? Well, we've got thousands and thousands of doctors, and we need to give them the tools to be able to take care of mental health issues. I want to talk about education. So there have obviously been teacher walkouts in Colorado. The current governor said during the teacher protests that you and he would try to restore the $1 billion roughly shifted from education to the rest of the state budget during the recession. Do you support a tax increase to raise more money and close that gap? I think we've got to uh, ask the people about a tax increase. And, so you would um, favor going to voters, w- what, this election? I think I think it's premature, this election. One of the things that uh, the governor and I did about a year ago was we issued an executive order and we built a stakeholder process. We've got Republicans, Democrats, teachers, principals, superintendents, business people. And we've been meeting for the last year to try to build some consensus around what do we want to look like as a state? What's our vision when it comes to education? Do you think that there needs to be more consensus built before you can go to the ballot? Absolutely. It's not there yet. I don't think this is a 2018 uh, issue. This is a 2019 issue once we build that consensus. Now, on transportation, you do want to see a tax passed sooner than later. That, of course, requires voter approval in Colorado. What have you seen firsthand, being at the highest level of state government, that tells you there's just not enough money already available to make transportation improvements and that leads you to believe a tax increase is necessary? Well, the first thing is really simple. Um, our general fund doesn't pay for transportation. It comes from the gas tax. 
tax. And I think, as most people know, the gas tax hasn't been increased in decades, and our cars are more efficient. So we actually are shrinking the amount of money that's available for our roads and our bridges. So there's no question we need to increase the funding for transportation. You mentioned frequently on the campaign trail that when you were in the private sector, in your words, you brought jobs to Colorado from California, in part because California was too expensive and congested, so people didn't want to live there anymore. Doesn't that sound like Colorado now? I mean, how do you avoid that kind of congestion here? Is it just building more roads? One of the things that I think in my campaign and that I've observed is we need a planning process that talks about transportation with housing and with economic development. And we often don't do them. We, we, we take them in silos. And many, many cities use transit a lot more than we do here in Colorado. I'll say that you want to create a statewide office, if you will, or, or function in state government to address affordable housing and a $25 million fund that would go along with it. We've just talked about how hard it is to find money already for infrastructure, education. Where are you going to get the money to create a new bureaucracy like that, a new fund? Yeah, well, $25 million I don't think is a, uh, is a lot of money. And quite frankly, the investment is going to pay off in multiples for people who right now are, in fact, starting to leave Colorado and businesses that are starting to have conversations around where should they locate jobs. So it is a, it is a small investment that we're going to make uh, around our housing fund. We are going to also focus, as you say, integrating economic development, housing, and transportation with some things that we know about our population, which is it's getting older. And that has some big implications for our state budget as well. You are less ambitious than some of your Democratic opponents when it comes to a goal for renewable energy, Uh, whereas one of them has said he wants Colorado to be 100 percent renewable by 2040. You've said that's unrealistic, that the legislature would never go for it. And it just reminds me that for people who are having a hard time distinguishing between you and Governor Hickenlooper, that may come as a red flag. I mean, he's known not so affectionately among environmentalists as Governor Frackenlooper. What do you say to those voters who are worried that you'll continue a record they don't see as progressive on this? I'm a doctorate in public health, and so I care deeply not only about public health issues, but as an outdoors person, also about our environment. I think what you'll find in this race, and hopefully voters understand this, I'm not a politician. Therefore, I'm not going to make statements that I can't stand behind. I completely support the transition to 100 percent renewable or whatever it becomes, 97 percent renewable. We've all got to do that. But a hard and fast deadline, I think, is not only not responsible, but it doesn't even address what technology or other changes might happen in the meantime. Let's talk briefly about guns. You've said you'd sign a ban on assault-style weapons. Would you want it to include the AR-15? It's one of the most popular recreational guns in the country, but one that has also been used in several mass shootings. Would it include the AR-15, yes or no? It would include the AR-15. Okay. And would you apply it retroactively? What to those who already possess the gun? Um, I have not thought about whether it should be retroactive or not. I mean, I know, you know, we have a Second Amendment. We have a lot of voters in this state that uh, are Democrats, unaffiliated, as well as Republicans who are gun owners. Uh, This is really a conversation to me, not about 
particular weapons. It's a conversation about what's an epidemic right now. We have an epidemic around gun violence that we need to address in more ways than just getting rid of weapons. You know, there are some who accuse the current governor of not using the bully pulpit enough, of not getting out in front of legislation and saying, this is what I want. Do you think that your leadership style would differ from John Hickenlooper's Were You Governor? You know, I think that um, I've got a long history in working with labor unions and negotiating labor contracts, working with Democrats, working with Republicans, and it's pretty complicated. And I think that, you know, you do run some risk when you get way far ahead of an issue. Um, But I did that on healthcare last year, and I am proud of the work that we did, even though uh, we got stopped by the Republicans because we were doing the right thing. The House Republicans, I'm sorry, the House Democrats, uh, some of the Republicans in the Senate, to try to make sure healthcare was more affordable, more transparent, and offered to more people. And there are some key issues like healthcare and housing and education that I think a governor needs to be very aggressive on. Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn is running for the Democratic nomination for governor. We spoke May 7th. Yesterday, we re-aired our conversations with the Republican candidates in that race. Today, the Democrats. Jared Polis, if elected, could be the nation's first openly gay governor. Perhaps that's why he held a campaign event recently called Breaking Barriers. You know, as a basic value, uh, I and probably most of you here believe that diversity is a strength. And if you believe that diversity is a strength, then you want more of it, right? Um, And so that's at all levels, including appointments that I get to make as governor, whether it's on the judicial side or in executive office, at all levels of representation. It has so many benefits. I mean, it means that people growing up from all backgrounds have that role model. And so it's about making sure that everybody knows that there should not be any barriers that hold them back from everything that they have the ability to accomplish. Polis became an entrepreneur, starting companies including the online florist ProFlowers. Then he turned to politics, serving six years on the State Board of Education. He was elected to Congress in 2008, representing a district that stretches from his hometown across a swath of northern Colorado. When the campaign event was over, Polis chatted in the parking lot, where he said he's ready to leave Washington. There's an urgency where on an issue like climate change, we can't afford to wait till there's a new president and a new Congress. We need governors and cities and counties to lead the way. On, on early childhood education, you're only young once. If you don't have preschool and kindergarten in place, that child doesn't get it. And it leads to another generation of the divide. So that's the urgency of acting now. Jared Polis sat down with us on May 30th to dig into his policies. What's the single biggest problem facing Colorado? How will you solve it? You know, the, the frustration that I hear from, from so many people, not just in the Denver metro area, frankly, across our state is, yes, uh, most people have a job, unemployment's low. But, but you know, people say, look, I've gotten a 2%, a 3% raise a year, but my cost of living's gone up 10% or 15%, my rent or my mortgage or my kids can't afford to go to college or buy a home. This economic growth just hasn't worked for everybody. And that's why we focus on how we can raise incomes really across the 
the whole continuum in Colorado and also make meaningful contributions on reducing costs with more affordable housing closer to where people work. Okay, it makes sense for a candidate to say, I'll raise your incomes, right? That's a nice promise to make to voters who are deciding whether to cast a ballot for you. How does a governor do that? Isn't that a company decision from a CEO? So a couple ideas. First of all, I support letting local communities set their own minimum wage above the state minimum wage that, you know, allows communities to reflect the local labor market. In addition, uh, I talk a lot about employee ownership models, meaning uh, ESOPs, co-ops, stock options. My goal is for Colorado to be the leader in meaningful worker participation in profits and ownership. Back to the idea of the minimum wage, Colorado already has increased it. What would you say to business owners who are shaking in their boots at the idea that it might go up even further? Well, I think we have very different communities across our state, and it should absolutely be the right on a number of issues uh, for communities to reflect the local conditions of their labor market. So I should think it's perfectly areas, appropriate. Should rural areas lower or their minimum wages? Well, no, there's got to be a floor, right? And we also have a national floor and we have a state floor that's part of our state constitution. I'm certainly not talking about tinkering with that. I'd like to talk to you about another big issue in this campaign, education. You would like free full-day preschool and full-day kindergarten in Colorado. How do you pay for it? I mean, first of all, how could we not pay for it? It actually saves money over time. A number of studies have shown three ways to pay for it. First of all, of course, we want to find uh, room in the general fund. Second of all, public-private partnerships through social impact bonding. This is how Westminster Adams 50 School District has gotten to universal kindergarten for every kid for free, and they have half their kids in full-day preschool. And third, if there's any left to fund, we're willing to roll up our sleeves and go to the ballot to do it. And I think if we show we've done the most with what we have, uh, voters will be willing to make that basic guarantee to all parents that, yes, your kids can go to preschool and kindergarten. You might go to the ballot, but you hope that there's money in the general fund for this. So often, the two priorities that are pitted against each other in the general fund, transportation and education. So why don't we talk about transportation? It's always part of the conversation when you talk about the money that the state has. Uh, What is your plan to ease the congestion that is driving a lot of people, certainly on the front range, crazy? and that is leading to roads that are not of of high quality, according to those in rural areas. You know what? When people are stuck in traffic, whether it's during their commute or during their leisure time, they want a governor that's going to do something about it. We have a bold transportation plan at polisforcolorado.com. And one of the highlights include Front Range Rail, Pueblo to Fort Collins, which uh, can compete on being time effective and cost effective for people to get to work and commute from the suburban communities. And we've got to get provide more alternatives, you know, more than just a single occupancy vehicle. You know, it's not that lane widening doesn't have a role, but you will never widen your way out of this traffic and growth dilemma that we are in. You've got to look at rail. You've got to look at bike commuting. You've got to look at transit plan communities. And yes, you've got to look at affordable housing so people can live closer to where they work rather than forcing taxpayers to pay for it on the back end through roads to the only places where people can afford to live. Likely headed for the ballot this year is a potential sales tax increase that the business community is trying to get support for. And uh, you've said that if that doesn't pass, you would lead an effort to go to the ballot and ask people for more money for for roads, etc. I think that's a critical role of the next governor. Again, there's a compromise with, with this current governor and the current legislature, and we'll see what happens in November. But if it remains to be done, I think the people of the state absolutely want a governor that will step up and lead. But on one hand, you're talking about people's ability to scrape by, especially when housing is so expensive. 
And you're saying, I may want to raise your taxes if I'm elected governor. How do you balance those? Uh, What we need to do is, of course, continue our economic growth, but do a better job making making sure it works for everyone geographically and regionally. I mean, the cost of being stuck in traffic for your average Coloradan is $600 a year. So that's a tax you're already paying in lost productivity. And I think that we can save Coloradans money. To energy now, currently state law requires that drill rigs for oil and gas be a minimum of 500 feet from homes, 1,000 feet from public buildings like schools, hospitals. A lot of local governments say those limits are insufficient. They're fighting for the right to make their own rules. Should they have that power to create stricter setbacks, that is to put drilling farther away? So one of the reasons I'm, I'm running for governor is we have to act on climate, on clean air, in the absence of national leadership. And we have a plan to get our state to 100% renewable energy by 2040 or sooner. Now, I know we're not there now. And so absolutely, we need to make sure that neighborhoods and communities have a say in what happens in their own backyard. They and do I, have a say already. Do you want them to have more of a say? Part of the problem now, Ryan, is communities get sued over exercising that say. There's lawsuits flying around over exactly what they can and can't do. For smaller communities, uh, they often can't afford the cost of seeing something through litigation, even should, if it's a right they have. So, should yes. they be able to set stricter setbacks specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Does that lead to a difficult patchwork for the for the industry? No, it's the same thing we do with cannabis. It's the same thing I propose doing with minimum wage. Uh, you know, we need to empower problem solvers closest to the ground, closest to our local communities. Let's talk about the 100% renewable energy goal by 2040. You cite climate change as a major threat and a motivator in that goal. Here's what one of your Democratic primary opponents, this is the current Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn, here's what she said at a candidate forum about your goal a few months ago. I don't think it's responsible to talk about so far in the future that we can't really even understand where we're going to go. So my promise to you with respect to any transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy is it's going to be realistic within the term that I have. When you hear a candidate say, I'm promising something for 2040 when I'm not in office, is, is that a promise that you just can't keep? Uh, not only is it responsible, it's imperative. Uh, we have a comprehensive plan to get to 100% renewable energy. It includes uh, raising the cap on community-scale solar, uh, lowering the financing costs for home solar, uh, working through the Public Utilities Commission with our investor-owned utilities, and working alongside our co-ops and our municipal utilities to help them reach that goal. What do you say to someone who works in oil and gas right now? We want to make sure they're first in line for good, green, renewable energy jobs. There's going to be as many, if not more, jobs in energy in 10 years and in 20 years than there are today. And we want to make sure that people that work in fossil fuels are able to have that transition to have good-paying jobs in renewable energy. To health care, you've endorsed a plan called Medicare for All. You've sponsored that legislation in Congress. It's gone nowhere. How do you make it happen as governor? It's time for the states to lead. Uh, It's not going to happen nationally uh, until I think a number of states have stepped up. Every other industrialized nation has some form of universal health care. Americans are getting ripped off and we're paying too much for prescription drugs uh, and for health care coverage. One large risk pool, negotiating for prescription drug rates, taking that burden off of small businesses for providing health care. This will be a boom to our economy, as well as finally recognizing that health care is a human right. But doesn't health care also benefit, benefit from economies of scale? In other words, does it make sense for a state to lead on something like that? So our top priority would be to do it through a multi-state consortium. And I think that's possible. 
possible, indeed even likely. The larger the risk pool, the greater leverage you have in negotiating better prescription drug rates. Can Colorado do it alone? Yes. Is it better to do it together with several states? It is, and the savings will be even more profound. In 2013, there was a proposal in Congress to ban a variety of military-style weapons. At the time, the Denver Post said you opposed the measure. Earlier this year, you sponsored a bill in Congress to ban assault-style weapons. Just briefly, what changed? Uh, well, I think like a lot of folks, um, I think that we need to fight this on all fronts. Um, you know, I, I stood up to the NRA for my very first days in Congress. They've rated me an F. And, but yes, specifically, reinstating the ban on the sale of assault weapons that we already had in this country from 1994 to 2004 uh, would absolutely help save lives in our country, and I'm proud to support it. Let's talk about the AR-15 specifically. What would you do with people who have an AR-15 right now? What I support is reimposing the ban on the sale of weapons that meet a certain firing rate categorization uh, or that have uh, magazines that meet a certain, you know, that are that are banned now in Colorado. So would it be retroactive to those who have those now? I'm not exactly sure how someone would implement something that was, that was retroactive. Hmm. But, you know, your focus on this one gun issue uh, should not be to the detriment of so many other gun safety issues. These are all important parts of the discussion around gun safety. Uh, and what you'll find in me as governor is a governor who's willing to have all of those discussions in a fact-based way to try to save lives so that no parent has to get the unthinkable call. Thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Jared Polis from May 30th. Hear the rest of the conversation in our new podcast called Who's Gonna Govern? You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Coloradans choose their next governor at a critical time. The state's growing, booming even. And the candidates have very different visions of how to invest in the future, in schools, in transportation, and health care. Now, Democrat Carrie Kennedy. We caught up with her after her first televised debate of the campaign. She was with her husband and three sisters deciding where to go for dinner. Anyone want to share a Carrie Kennedy story from growing up? Kennedy's younger sister, actually a stepsister, Kimberly Jackson, volunteered. I was a junior in high school, Carrie was a senior, and our parents were discussing allowances. And my father had determined that I didn't need one because I had a job. And I had Carrie standing there arguing that what I did with my free time, if it happened to earn me extra money, didn't negate my need for an allowance from the parents. (laughs) Now, it's not her parents she makes arguments in front of, but voters. The night's debate may have been more nerve-wracking for Kennedy's family watching in the audience than for the candidate herself. It was substantive. We were able to talk about our priorities and our vision for the state. So I'm pleased and I'm going to go have a margarita with my sisters. Kennedy served one term as state treasurer. She was unseated in 2010 by the current treasurer, Republican Walker Stapleton, who's also running for governor. Kennedy then served as Denver's chief financial officer and deputy mayor under Michael Hancock. Let's listen to Ryan Warner's conversation with Kennedy, recorded April 30th. What is the single biggest problem facing Colorado, and how do you propose to solve it? So I think we're all really proud of Colorado. We're an innovative and forward-looking state. We've built what is now the number one ranked economy in the country. And I think the biggest challenge facing us is that the investments that we're making in education, 
don't match that progress. And the investments we're making in our infrastructure to support um, a rapidly growing population, we're all feeling the impacts of growth and the impacts on our state's environment. So it's making sure that as our economy and our population grows, um, that we're making those investments that support prosperity for everyone. And what do you think is the culprit? What is the reason that investments, as you say, don't keep up with the growth? We've been cutting school budgets for nearly three decades here in Colorado ever since. An amendment was adopted here called the Tabor Amendment that's forced us to cut education budgets. We have half the school districts in the state of Colorado today now down to a four-day school week, Ryan. It doesn't make any sense for a state as strong as Colorado. You've said that Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, prevents the state from keeping up with growth, and you've pledged to lead a bipartisan coalition to pass permanent Tabor changes. But as the current governor told me just the other day, quoting him, in many parts of Colorado, Tabor is still very popular. So I want to imagine that your governor, Kerry Kennedy, you're at the table with leaders from the House and Senate, and maybe those are led by the other party. What's your leverage? Yeah, so the good news, Ryan, is we really have bipartisan support for permanent Tabor reform in Colorado. Really? Nearly, Wouldn't it have happened nearly by every, now? Well, nearly every local government in the state has already passed Tabor reform because they see at the local level the impacts on their fire districts, on their counties, their cities. And we have Republican and Democratic legislators who will stand side by side going to the statewide ballot to say, as our state keeps up with growth, our investment in education, our investment in infrastructure needs to keep up as well. I want to talk about your role in another budgetary measure that is in the state constitution. Amendment 23 has to do with K-12 through education funding. Of course, there were teacher walkouts in Colorado, educators demanding that the state meet its obligations to schools. And you did indeed lead the campaign for Amendment 23 in 2000, which required lawmakers to increase education spending each year. Then the recession hit, and the legislature essentially found a way around that. With so many other competing provisions in the Colorado Constitution, including Tabor, was Amendment 23 a false promise? So education needs to be Colorado's top priority. People of this state want us to have among the best public education system in the country. And, and the tying... teachers are out protesting because our investment in education has fallen so low that they can't afford to work here. And we're losing great teachers. And I think we all know we can do better. So that would have been the argument you made, I'm assuming, in 2000 when Amendment 23 passed. Was it unwise to put that in the state constitution? So Tabor was forcing cuts in education, and I wrote Amendment 23 to stop those cuts. And here we are 20 years later, because once again, Tabor has forced cuts in our education budget for decades. Now, there are some who would say Tabor started some of the economic growth we're seeing, that when money is in the hands of taxpayers, not government, that's how growth happens. What would you say to people who stand by Tabor and say, no, I don't want the state to have more of my money? Oh, I think people see businesses in Colorado doing well and having a competitive tax structure is important. But we're not providing the educated workforce to support the growth in the businesses that are here. A lot of companies in Colorado, when they go to fill their high-skilled, high-paying jobs, they're recruiting from outside of Colorado. I want to go back to education. You've been endorsed by the state's largest teachers union and the state chapter of the American Federation of Teachers. How would you say your education plan stands out from the rest of the Democratic field? 
You know, I'm concerned with the direction of education in Colorado. I'm concerned we're focused too much on high-stakes testing, that we've been blaming our teachers rather than giving our teachers the support and the resources and the tools to support the learning in their students. Your energy plan, Carrie Kennedy, would double the state's renewable energy standard from 30 to 60 percent. You've said you support a state appeals court decision that rules for oil and gas development must be subject to the protection of public health, safety and welfare, including protection of the environment and wildlife resources. That case is headed to the state Supreme Court. What does it mean practically to you if a greater emphasis is placed on public health? What would it mean on the ground for homeowners and mineral owners? So first of all, Ryan, we need to as a state lead in addressing climate change. We need to move to clean, renewable sources of energy. It is growing our state's economy. It's where we're seeing the fastest job growth. And it's important for us to reduce our emissions here as a state and do our part. Energy is an important industry in Colorado. We're one of the largest oil and gas producers in the nation. We need to make sure we're developing those resources responsibly, and that means putting public health and safety as our priority in regulating that industry. What change would that mean to you? Well, right now you see communities where energy companies are coming in and and they want to drill right next to a school. They want to drill right next to a playground. Colorado increased setbacks for those. You would increase those setbacks further, do you think? For schools, for community uh, resources where you've got neighborhoods. They need to have a say in what's happening in their own jurisdiction, and they need to have the authority to protect water quality, air quality, and protect their communities. If that meant that someone who owns the mineral rights beneath that land wasn't able to access them, do you think the state should compensate the mineral rights owners? So here's where technology is really helping us. New technologies give the industry the ability to change the location of where they drill and still be able to access minerals. We can't take away the ability to access those resources, but technology gives the industry much more flexibility so that we can protect public health, safety, and welfare and still develop the resources. To guns, you've said you'd ban military-style assault weapons. That includes the AR-15, one of the most popular recreational guns in the country, often, though, involved in mass shootings. Would you just ban sales of new ones? Would it also mean taking those guns out of the hands of people who already have them? Yeah, so, you know, as a mom, I have the same reaction as every parent Every grandparent in this country, when we see the headlines about a school shooting of sheer terror for what those families are going through, we shouldn't have to live with that fear. The vast majority of gun owners in our state and in our country are law-abiding citizens who use their guns for law-abiding purposes. And who may own AR-15s. But for the narrow band of people who intend to do harm to as many people as possible in as short a period of time as possible. We absolutely need to ban these weapons of war. Would you take AR-15s, for example, out of someone's hands who already owns one today? I would ban these military-style weapons. Uh, Going forward or retroactively? Going forward, and we'd have to talk about how we license or permit people who have them today. Okay. Earlier this year, a detective who was on Mayor Michael Hancock's security detail accused him of sexually harassing her. She provided suggestive texts that he'd sent in 2012. The mayor apologized. 
And back then, the detective received a $75,000 settlement in another harassment matter. The city also paid hefty legal fees in connection with these cases. And it's come out that the city attorney was aware of the texts back then. You were Denver's chief financial officer and deputy mayor. How much did you know about what was going on? Yeah, so Ryan, I'm saddened by the mayor's conduct. It was clearly inappropriate. I was not aware of any of this. And uh, the city attorney's office handled those personnel matters I did not. Finally, you and Democrat Donna Lynn are the only women in this race. Uh, Republican Cynthia Kaufman failed to win enough votes at the recent state assembly. Colorado's never had a female governor, even though the state has historically had uh, more women in its legislature than many other states, was early in giving women the vote. Have you given any thought to why there hasn't been a female governor? Yeah, you know, most people don't believe it. They can't believe a state as progressive as Colorado hasn't had a woman governor yet, 140 years of statehood. And uh, I am inspired by the excitement I see around the state to promote women into positions of leadership. It's exciting to see the women's movement this year. And uh, I think this is the year we're going to get it done. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. Democrat Carrie Kennedy is running for governor. She spoke with Ryan Warner on April 30th. And that's our show for today. You can find this and all of our conversations with the Republicans and Democrats vying to be their party's choice for governor on our podcast, Who's Gonna Govern? Find it wherever you get your podcasts. There's a link at CPR.org. And remember, if you're an unaffiliated voter and choose to participate in next week's primaries, only return one ballot. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.